Welcome to Citizens Climate Radio, your climate change podcast. In this show, we highlight people's stories, we celebrate successes, and together we share strategies for talking about climate change. I'm Ruth Abraham. I'm Peter Santoscano. And I'm Lila Powell. Welcome to episode 83 of Citizens Climate Radio, a project of Citizens Climate Education. This episode is airing on Friday, April 24th, 2023. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into the history of air conditioning. Sounds, um, interesting. (laughs) Right? When the idea was first introduced, I was like, how cool could air conditioning really be? It's actually pretty fascinating, and its origins are more complex than you might imagine. Which is why we need three hosts. Peterson, you sat down with Eric Dean Wilson. He's the author of the book, After Cooling, on Freon, Global Warming, and the Terrible Cost of Comfort. Eric lives in New York City, and he has his roots in Memphis, Tennessee. Having lived in Memphis myself, I can attest to how air conditioning gets cranked up about half the year. The coldest summer of my life was in an office building in Memphis, Tennessee. Eric teaches creative writing to undergrads. He's an accomplished writer himself, having published essays, poems, and criticism in Time Magazine and Esquire, along with many creative writing journals. His book, After Cooling, is insightful, informative, and and often quite humorous. I would have assumed that air conditioning was one of those technologies that was inevitable, that we were always looking for, and that once we found it or once somebody invented it, people would say, oh, thank goodness, we've been waiting for this. I was surprised to find in my research that that is not true. Throughout the 19th century, really, um, and maybe early 20th century, the history of air conditioning is a history of false starts, of people coming very close to inventing, or in some cases inventing air conditioning, and then people rejecting it or feeling very uncomfortable with the idea of thermal comfort. Really, a modern air conditioner does a few things. It can control the temperature, so both cool it and also, in some cases, heat it, so control the temperature in all ways. It can purify the air, so it can filter out unwanted particles. It can ventilate, so it can blow the air in a certain direction mechanically. And maybe uh, most crucially and most difficult of all is it can humidify or dehumidify the air. Once you can control humidity, you can really control the quality of the air. And it's particularly difficult to do, to wring moisture out of the air. Um, so if comfort wasn't the point of AC, then what was it for? Turns out the creation of air conditioning, like so many things in the USA, is a familiar story. The true birth of air conditioning is really about money in sort of two ways. So the first publicly cooled space was not for private home comfort was not for sort of the general public or something like that. It was for the stock traders on Wall Street. They had just built a new building, uh, the current building on 11 Broad Street. They realized that in the summer, the huge windows and the architecture of it would make the trading floor incredibly hot and stuffy. And they were in the habit of taking a break for the summer. But of course, when that happens, they lose a lot of money. So they contacted an engineer to work on an air cooling system to successfully cool the traders during the summer so that, quite literally, capital could flow. I feel like that's very telling, that it wasn't so much about health as it was about money. And at the same time, the very same time, an engineer named Willis Carrier, who might sound familiar to a lot of people, the carrier of Carrier Air Conditioning, was put on the task of dehumidifying for factories. This was also very successful. The first project was also in New York, in Brooklyn, actually, for a printing press because the humidity was making the ink for a printing press run. 
his task was to create a machine, essentially an air conditioner, that would dehumidify and cool so that the printing press could save a lot of money. Throughout the early 1900s, that's really what the main use of air conditioners was for, was in factory spaces. And again, not always to cool, sometimes to heat and to humidify. Like for instance, in tobacco factories, you wanted there to be a very moist, very hot air because otherwise the tobacco would flake and crack. But if you were, say, manufacturing movie film or chewing gum, then you'd want it to be very cold or else it would melt. The product dictated the ideal air conditions of the workspace. In a sense, there was also a component of air conditioning that was about human comfort, but it was human comfort so that they could work more efficiently to, again, increase profit. Wow, AC has changed so much since then, and it's everywhere now. Yeah, like that office I worked in in Memphis. (laughs) We actually found out where the thermostat was on the wall, and we figured out how to hack the system with a Ziploc bag of ice that we taped over the thermostat. The bosses uh, didn't like that at all. (laughs) I cannot imagine having to do all that to stay warm in the summer. The one place I always remember having to bring a sweater is to the movies. My movie uniform, per se, always involves a hoodie or a jacket, at minimum. It's always freezing cold in there. Turns out, movie theaters played a major role in the evolution of air conditioning. The general public was most likely to be introduced to air conditioning through the movie theater. One of the reasons why it wasn't in the home yet is because it was still awkward as a technology. It was hard to control. Part of what made air conditioning so exciting to sell was that on a very hot summer day, they would crank the air conditioning up so intensely so that you would feel it immediately like a like an icebox or like a freezer right when you walked in, which felt incredibly good for about five minutes. And then after that, it would be extremely cold for the rest of the movie. Let's take a look at how AC is a climate change issue. For one, on extremely hot days, AC is essential for people's respiratory diseases and the elderly. It's literally a lifesaver. But at the same time, air conditioning contributes directly to the warming of the planet. In most places, it runs on electricity that gets generated by fossil fuels. The more AC units run, the more greenhouse gas emissions increase. On the hottest days of the year, for some people, air conditioning is a lifesaver. Historically, the use of air conditioning has not been for survival. It's been for comfort. And the irony is that we've relied on it so much that it's made our planet hotter, not just air conditioning, but it's been implicated in the warming of the planet so that it now has become a tool for survival because we've made the planet hotter. Eric told me about a long history of dangerous substances. He also mentioned a quirky inventor who, in trying to fix one problem, created a much bigger one. His name was Thomas Midgley Jr., and he sort of um, lived up to the stereotype of a mad scientist. He was trained as a mechanical engineer, but he was put on projects that involved chemistry. So he'd had no formal training in chemistry. He was charismatic enough that his boss, Charles Kettering, put him on these chemical projects. The first one was to find a solution to gasoline knock. In the early days of automobile gasoline, a problem would happen where the car engines would knock. It would eat up a lot of the gasoline and it would make the engines really inefficient. And nobody knew how to fix it. Thomas Midgley actually came up with a solution for this, which ended up being leaded gasoline. But one of the ways he did it was that he just started pouring random chemicals into an engine to see whether they worked or not, which is something that you or I are perfectly qualified to do. (laughs) He had really no plan, and he probably went through about 100 of them. So this was kind of the Midgley method, where he just threw things around and saw if they stuck. 
So leaded gasoline was, even at the time, incredibly scandalous because everyone knew that it was toxic, um, including probably Midgley. But again, profit was driving the production of this. That kind of culminated in a bunch of reporters showing up at his office and saying, you know, this has lead in it and you're putting it out into the atmosphere. How do we know that this is safe for us? To show reporters that it was perfectly safe, which it wasn't, he took a barrel of the leaded gasoline and dunked his hands in it and then washed his face in it and said, see, it's perfectly fine. Later, he got lead poisoning. An environmental historian was writing about Thomas Midgley and said that possibly no other organism, including cyanobacteria, has had a single greatest effect on the planet than Thomas Midgley Jr. And he was the guy tasked with working on improving air conditioning? From a public health standpoint, Thomas Midgley Jr. hoped to make air conditioning safer for people. And from a business standpoint, his innovations led to a booming air conditioning industry. There are a couple of refrigerants that were used what are called the natural refrigerants in the early 1900s. Things like carbon dioxide, ammonia was super common, sulfur dioxide, methyl chloride, things like that. The problem with all of those, except for carbon dioxide, is that they were either poisonous or explosive or sometimes both. <laughs> so if you were in a movie theater in the 1920s and there was an ammonia leak, it was incredibly noxious and um, you know, it kind of smells like urine. Not a pleasant thing to sit through during a film, right? And not good for business. Carbon dioxide is totally safe, but the properties of it are tricky to use as a refrigerant because it has to be super pressurized, which we can actually do pretty well now, but we couldn't back then. Everyone at the time in the 20s and 30s, by everyone, I mean companies who were making engineering equipment and air conditioners, things like General Electric, were looking for a kind of miracle refrigerant. This miracle refrigerant was found by Thomas Midgley Jr. He invented what we now know as Freon, which is a brand name. So it's a family of chemicals called chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs. The amazing thing about CFCs is that they were the perfect refrigerant. Chemically, they were perfectly suited because they were designed in a lab for refrigerating, for being used in an air conditioner. They were also completely safe on a human level. You could sniff them. They were non-toxic. They were very stable. They didn't interact with other chemicals. They were not explosive. To all available evidence... This seemed incredibly safe. Once Freon was invented, that allowed air conditioning to expand to larger spaces and also more spaces for cheaper. So we have Thomas Midgley Jr. to thank for making AC go viral. Yeah, and this expansion turned out to be terrible for the planet and those of us living on it. They weren't nearly as safe as we thought. In the early 1970s, two atmospheric chemists named Mario Molina and Sherry Rowland sort of by accident figured out that CFCs had the potential to waft into the stratosphere, which is an upper level of the atmosphere where planes fly, where the ozone layer is. Um, it's a very thin layer of ozone molecules, and it is what one writer in the 1930s calls the only thing between us and speedy death. It is what protects us from the sun's most violent ultraviolet radiation by absorbing that radiation. Without it, our skin would burn within minutes outside. These two atmospheric chemists in the 70s realized that CFCs, because they were so stable and not interacting with anything, were just hanging around in the atmosphere until they got to the stratosphere, where they were messing up the whole planet's atmospheric chemistry and depleting the ozone layer. So suddenly within sort of a matter of a decade, you had major ozone depletion that was appearing at the poles of the planet uh, over Antarctica and then also the North Pole. During October and November, almost complete absence of ozone. 
which is extremely alarming. That story has a very sort of happy ending, or a, a pretty good ending, which is that because the UN organized talks to figure out what to do about it, they were able to come up with something called the Montreal Protocol, which is still the world's only legally binding international agreement to prevent environmental destruction from happening, or it actually happens. When I was learning about this, the history of this, I found that really inspiring because I thought, oh my goodness, we've actually done this already. True, it's not on the scale of carbon dioxide, it's not on the scale of climate change, but it could be. What I saw in this history of the Montreal Protocol, which I didn't really know a lot of, and as I began to learn about it, I realized that we, sort of as a planet, had already faced an unprecedented planetary threat through international negotiations had actually come up with legislation that had phased down and then eventually phased out the use of these chemicals. By the 90s, this Montreal Protocol was so successful, businesses got on board, they realized they could make more money selling alternative chemicals. So again, profit is always sort of king under these sorts of problems. But it was more profitable for chemical companies to sell the alternatives. And really by the year 2000, major production of CFCs had stopped entirely. The ozone hole is still appearing at the poles, but it's way, way less than it used to be. And the core problem, the production of CFCs, has stopped. So that's fantastic. In his book and in the interview, Eric talks about the devastating price of comfort. The United States has kind of exported this model for comfort elsewhere, to China, to India, to Indonesia. And right now, the United States is in the habit of criticizing those nations who are asking for the same comfort, even though we're not doing hardly anything. Eric also reveals the history of air conditioning and comfort is wrapped up in the USA's racist history. The history of eugenics in America, which America has a robust history of eugenics still, is uncomfortably intertwined with the history of air conditioning. From the earliest days of air conditioning, it has been systematically denied to the black population because of racist notions of biology. For instance, there was a common belief in the 18th and 19th century that enslaved Africans could endure temperatures and also pain a lot more than than white people. Um, That is, of course, false, but it was a justification for the way that they were being treated comfort was systematically denied to them. This also shows up in the history of redlining communities in uh, New York. A great example of this is you know, the Upper West Side, which is historically a very middle-class white neighborhood, which is just really like 20 blocks from Harlem, which is historically a working and middle-class black neighborhood. Because of redlining and that racial segregation, 100 years ago, there was an investment in trees, shade infrastructure on the Upper West Side, but not in Harlem. The legacy of that, a century later, is still present, so that you can walk just maybe 20 minutes from the Upper West Side, and you can experience an almost 10 degree difference on a hot summer day. We are living through the history still of racial segregation. Even though redlining is different and we have more integrated neighborhoods, we're still living through that racist history. Wow, I never even thought about how shade affects the climate indoors. Right? And the fact that shade infrastructure differences in the Upper West Side and Harlem still impact residents today is shocking. So how are we supposed to combat this? What can we do? This was the most exciting part of Eric's book for me. 
He helps us see a future that doesn't rely on air conditioning for our comfort. It's a future that looks so attractive to me. One of the things I call for in the book is rather than focusing on individual comfort and individual survival, to really try to rethink our notion of comfort and think about collective comfort and collective survival, community survival. So things like how can we make our cities cooler without relying on air conditioning so much? Those are things like major tree planting campaigns to make our cities greener and also make access to green space easier and more equitable. In a place like New York, LA, Chicago, access to green space is a lot easier in wealthier and wider neighborhoods. That's a justice issue. We have to look at making our access to these shady neighborhoods, which can really help on a hot day, accessible to all. You can actually live happily under a very different model of community or values. And I think that's what I'm excited about and what I think is possible in the future. I'd love to see more green spaces in cities. And developing shade infrastructure sounds so cool. No pun intended. The reality is, other places have plenty of ways of addressing heat and cooling spaces. Totally. I remember I studied abroad in London over the summer, and the buildings didn't have AC. We just always had our windows open or hung out in the basement on hotter days. It was still just as comfortable. Plus, having fresh air and switching up our hangout spots was honestly really nice. Building construction that keeps out the heat is nothing new. Last year, when I lived in South Africa, I was totally amazed at how our house stayed cool. With thick walls, shading on multiple sides of the house, and ventilation in the ceilings, we lived pretty comfortably without AC. I intern at the Brock Environmental Center. It's one of the world's greenest buildings and is located in Virginia Beach, which is the most populated city in Virginia. This totally changed the game for me because it showed me how self-reliant and environmentally friendly you can be while still being in a major city. The good news is that architects and designers are taking these construction considerations seriously. The best architects understand how to integrate the environment into the design of a building. So I have a lot of hope with the future of building design. And I don't think that we have to suffer through the coming warm years. I think that we can actually learn to live with our warming environment, perhaps less comfortably in the way that we think about it. But we should really ask ourselves whether the way we're living now is making for a more comfortable planet overall. So much depends on our actions and attitudes. Each month, we are now offering you, our listener, meaningful next steps for you to consider taking. Some of these are going to be personal choices and actions, while others are on a larger scale. So Ruth, after hearing Eric talk about the history of air conditioning and the future we need to co-create, what's the next step that you suggest? Here's my proposal. If green spaces are cooler, then they should be everywhere. Green spaces are known for their positive effect on mental health. I visited a friend in Austin, Texas, and I was pleasantly surprised by the amount of space reserved for trees and lawns. As we traveled around Austin, the green spaces made me fall in love with the city. They were seemingly infinite places to lounge and connect with others. So how can you start building a green space? You can start small and like a seedling, have your actions grow. My suggestion is to cool your living space with a plant or several. You can get house plants that release extra moisture into your rooms. Some of these include spider plants, jade, Boston ferns, and peace lilies. The plants help clean the air and cool things down. If you have a yard or green space on the sidewalk, see about planting a tree that provides cooling shade. You may need to connect with your municipality if the green space is part of a sidewalk. You can even get your neighborhood to join in on the effort. It's these collective small steps that bring us closer to climate solutions. How about you, Peterson? 
There are so many hacks we can use to alter the temperature in our homes, but I want to propose something more ambitious. I love the idea of changing systems. Besides your own home, consider a building where you spend lots of time. It might be your school or where you work, shop, or work out. In the summer, these spaces can have the air conditioning pumping so high. It initially feels good when you come in from the heat, but after 20 minutes, people start freezing. How about you begin a campaign to have the building operators increase the temperature by one or two degrees? In other words, lower the intensity of the air conditioning. Do a little research about who makes these decisions. Find out who else shares your concern. Maybe even figure out a cost analysis of how the building operators will save money by decreasing the amount of AC in the summer. Then use your volunteer lobbying skills to advocate for this change. We will have links in our Dig Deeper section of our show notes to help you with your next step. Visit cclusa.org radio. That's cclusa.org radio. Eric's book is After Cooling, on Freon, Global Warming, and the Terrible Cost of Comfort. It's published by Simon & Schuster and is available wherever you get your books. You can also follow Eric on Twitter and Instagram at Eric Dean Wilson. That's at Eric Dean Wilson. And if you have ideas for cooling buildings and communities, email us radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. This month, we premiere a new section of our podcast. We love Tamara Staten and the Resilience Corner. She's so encouraging. And don't worry, she'll be back on the show in the very near future. But today, we have a new corner that just opened on the show, The Nerd Corner. The Nerd Corner is hosted by Dana Nuccitelli, Citizen Climate's research coordinator. He's an environmental scientist and climate journalist with a master's degree in physics. Dana is, right? He's wicked smart, and he can help non-scientists like me understand the complex issues he writes about. Hi, I'm Dana Nuccitelli, CCL Research Coordinator, and this is The Nerd Corner. I'm here to highlight some interesting new climate research for the nerds out there, and to make it understandable for the nerd curious. In this episode, we consider the question, are clean technologies and renewable energies better for the environment than fossil fuels? The reality is, every technology has some level of climate and environmental impact, and this includes renewables. To make a solar panel or wind turbine or battery, we first need to mine the earth for minerals. We then manufacture them into a technological product. Then we transport that product to its final home. So how do the impacts of these green options measure up to the impacts of the fossil fuel technologies they're replacing? There's one key difference between technologies powered by fossil fuels and the cleaner alternatives. When the energy comes from coal, oil, or gas, we're just burning those fossil fuels. That means we always have to extract more fossil fuels from the earth to provide more energy. It never ends. For example, humans mine and burn 8 billion tons of coal every single year. For comparison, the World Bank estimates that in order to make the clean technologies needed to meet the Paris climate targets, we'll need just 3.5 billion tons of minerals over the next 30 years. So by transitioning to clean technologies, we can massively reduce our overall mining footprint. 
but how do clean technologies require mining at all? You see, we need to mine a lot of copper and zinc to make a wind turbine. Solar panels require copper and silicon. And to make batteries to store that clean energy, we need lithium and other metals. The good news is that mining only happens once. Once it's done, the solar panel just soaks up the sun, the wind turbine spins in the breeze, and the battery fills up on electrons that increasingly come from clean energy sources. And at the end of the product's life, most of its minerals can be recycled to make new solar panels, wind turbines, or batteries. In short, the answer is that it's ultimately better for the environment to deploy clean technologies today than to continue interminably mining, drilling, refining, transporting, and burning dirty fossil fuels. I'm Dana Nugitelli with The Nerd Corner. Thank you for being curious and for your commitment to climate progress. To join the discussion about climate science, technology, economics, and policy with CCL's research team, check out The Nerd Corner at cclusa.org slash nerd-corner. That's cclusa.org slash nerd-corner. I hope to see you there. Thank you, Dana. If you have a question for Dana, email us at radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. We will make sure he gets your question. Now it is time for our good news story with Ruth Abraham. Last month, I brought my amazing virtual internship to life by attending CCL Southeast's regional conference. Citizens Climate Leaders organized the weekend around the theme of building a secure energy future. I arrived on the campus of Georgia Tech, and the second I stepped foot into the Commutative Building for Innovative Sustainable Design, I was mesmerized. It's the world's 28th building to receive a living building certification. From top to bottom, the whole building is sustainable. It's decked out with natural lighting that powers the solar canopies. Through garden hose-like pipes, they use radiant heating. When they want to cool the building down, they run chilled water through that tubing in the concrete floor. And that cools down the concrete, which cools down the building. They even have a compostable toilet system, and no, they were not stinky. I introduced myself to another person who looked to be about my age. Turns out, she was a student at Georgia Tech, currently undergoing advocate training of the hopes of starting a citizen's climate chapter on our campus in the upcoming year. The speakers inspired me. My very own Georgia Senator, Raphael Warnock, congratulated CCL on a work well done. Senator Warnock recognized the success of volunteer lobbying. And if you want to know how to do it well, check out last month's episode about lobbying. Then we heard Atlanta's Chief Sustainability Officer, Chandra Svali, detail the city's moves towards sustainability. This was long before sustainability was ever even given that label. At the end of the first day session, many of us ate at a local pizza place to continue our conversation and soak in the day's information. Over the meal, I learned about CCL's People of the Global Majority Group, and I may have inadvertently joined a book club. I walked away with conference-induced euphoria and with the closing remarks ringing in my ears. If it can happen in the Southeast, it can happen anywhere. I have even more good news for you. The Citizens Climate International Conference and Lobby Day will be held June 10th to June 13th, 2023 in Washington, D.C. It will be CCL's biggest day of climate lobbying since 2019. The Citizens Climate Conference includes everything you'll need to power up your climate advocacy. And Peterson, I heard a rumor you were going to lead a storytelling workshop at the conference. 
I can totally confirm that rumor, yes. <laughs> there will be a lot of breakout sessions, they're awesome, including one I will lead on telling effective stories. Registration is open now until May 21st. To learn more and register, visit cclusa.org slash juneconference. That's cclusa.org slash juneconference. And thank you for joining Peterson, Lila, and me for episode 83 of Citizens Climate Radio. To see links to our guests and a full transcript of this episode, visit cclusa.org slash radio. Look for episode 83. That's cclusa.org radio. Special thanks to the members of our advisory board, Tamara Staten, Maggie Steinbach, Kitty Zakreski, Sharon Baglatel, Kelly Roach, Zolemi Hernandez, Hannah Rogers, Sean Degg, and Brett Cease. Citizens Climate Radio is written and produced by Peterson Toscano, Ruth Abraham, and me, Lila Powell. Y'all are learning too much too fast. You're going to be taking this thing away from me. I could just see it right now. <laughs> Other technical support from Ricky Bradley and Brett Cease. Social media assistance from Ashley Hunt Mortorano, Flannery Winchester, Katie Zakreski, Saida Nakfi, and Steve Volk. Moral support from Madeline Para. The music on today's show comes from epidemicsound.com. If you like what you heard today, please share this episode with your friends. And visit cclusa.org slash radio to see our show notes and find links to our guests. You can also find our contact details so you can email us or leave a voicemail. Citizens Climate Radio is a project of Citizens Climate Education. 